Hi there. Welcome back to The Fray. You're about to listen to episode five of the podcast series, ostensibly dedicated to the mathematician and French patriot Evariste Galois. However, we are covering quite a bit of ground getting there. So episode five is still knee deep in the world of the history of algebra. So if you want to catch up with what we've been covering so far, feel free to listen to some previous episodes. If you want to dive in, welcome. And then thanks for joining me as we enter the fray. been a little bit longer of a wait for this episode. Thanks for your patience. The holidays are always a hectic time and throw in a little violent insurrection to the mix and it has been a challenge for me to concentrate on medieval Islamic mathematics. This is the result of poor planning on my part, planning never really being one of my strong points. Maybe I should take the time and bake into my process a plan to plan. But is that possible? Can you actually plan to plan? Are you not planning already when you are planning to plan? And does not that planning constitute planning in the sense of the overall plan? See, this is where my head has been for the better part of six weeks. Oh, and do I forget something? Oh, yeah, there's the pandemic that we're all dealing with. We are fast approaching one year in some version of a lockdown. My four walls are beginning to feel a lot like a place of incarceration and less like my home. But when, right? The COVID crisis that is enveloping the world has wrought so much more than just my claustrophobic meanderings. Now, it has touched just about every facet of our lives, and it's not surprising that it even touches on something that correlates very nicely into my podcast. Well, at least this episode. Now, since we are talking about math, and in particular algebra in this series, all in the hope, someday I promise, I will start actually talking about Evariste Galois. In the meantime, COVID in the early stages of the pandemic provided a startling glimpse into the future of the world that algebra, and in many ways, Galois, ushered into our lives. Now, I came across this story last summer in the form of an article in The Guardian. It was written by a guy named John Naughton, who chairs an advisory board in England called the Mindaroo Center. I always read it wrong because there's the R at the end of their T's. The Mindaroo Center for Technology and Democracy. Now, the story starts last summer, August 11th, to be precise. Now, a determination was made to pause or altogether do without certain aspects of daily life that just couldn't be accommodated in the time of a pandemic. Now, one of these aspects that was canceled was something called the A-level testing of students. These series of exams go a long way into determining the next step for many of the best and brightest. Now, think of them like the SATs that high school students participate here in the States. Now, with the cancellation of the testing, the educators of England found themselves in a sticky wicket. How do we generate the final grades of these students without these crucial exams? They were faced with a choice. The first was to rely on the teachers of said students to estimate how the students would do on the test and give an approximation of a final grade. The second option was to turn over all the information to an algorithm and let it determine the final grades. The choice was made to go with the algorithm, which incidentally has its own name. I'd like to introduce you to the Ofqual, O-F-Q-U-A-L, so Ofqual algorithm. Now, when the grades were released after Ofqual got done analyzing the data, it caused a stir. Now, this was due to a large percentage of students 
somewhere between 35 and 40% received grades that were a full letter grade lower than they would have gotten before the math, or off-qual, stepped in to settle it. What happened next was one of the largest rebellions, at least according to the article, against an algorithm that I can recall in modern society. I mean, there were literally signs and, like, shouts of, fuck the algorithm, you know, during hearings and stuff. And to make matters worse, it seemed like Ofqual singled out lower-income public school students who made up most of the percentage that received lower grades. Now, in fact, if a student attended a costly private school, they were twice as likely to receive an A than their public school counterparts. Now, the anger released because of these results was only quelled when the prime minister himself stepped in and threw out Ofqual's results and asked the teachers to give the final grades. The prime minister went so far as to call Ofqual a mutant algorithm. That's a quote. Which, according to the author of the article and common sense of most who understand how algorithms work, is not true. Ofqual didn't go off the reservation and punish poor kids just because it felt like it. In actuality, what Ofqual did was exactly what it was programmed to do. Take the information at hand, follow its internal logic, and determine the best answer, which is what it did. What people got so upset about was how Ofqual exposed the systemic repression of non-elites. The information that was entered into Ofqual was already slanted in the favor of the private school kids. The reality is that modern society is still built upon a foundation of inequality and suppositions that make it much harder for less privileged people to get ahead in life. That is what the data said. Interestingly, instead of learning that lesson, it seemed like the educators of England scapegoated the math and chalked it up to malfunctioning technology and couldn't see the truth staring them in the face. That society gives more credence to where you went to school and what the name is on the outside of the building than what happens inside its walls. So besides the cognitive dissonance concerning how human intellect and learning is actually valued in society, what else does this tell us? For me, the most important aspect of the story is not the rampant ignorance of society's biases. It is instead the large chasm between society and how everyone, including its leaders, obviously, understand how the world of algorithms and in turn our modern world actually works. This is especially prevalent when it comes to examples like Ofqual and its ability to use heretofore unknown logic to ascertain results that shine a light in the dark places of human thought. We all think we are basically good people. We all think that people that look like us are basically good people. We all generally do not like people who do not look like us. In turn, we all generally do not like people who do not think like us. We all like to think we make decisions that reflect a holistic understanding of how the world works. Now, when someone casts doubt on these beliefs about oneself, there is usually two choices. In the instance of off-qual and the grades, it produced, once they were presented to the humans involved, most of the thinking around the cause and effect of the situation was a mutant algorithm had gone off the rails, when in truth of the matter was exactly the opposite. Human thinking has always been off the rails, obeying nothing even close to a formal set of logical rules on any sort of consistent basis and Ofqual just happened to notice and point it out to us. It is a very strong impulse in the human psyche to protect those fundamental concepts that manifest as pronouns. You, me, I, we, us. These are all intertwined with ideas that, sure, I'm a good person. Now, just as an aside, during the busing crisis that started in 1974 in Boston, which, if you don't know, is a conflict that arose due to a governmental policy enacted with the goal of integrating Boston public schools. Though it's 
pretty much a known fact nowadays. It bears repeating that Beantown has a very strong history of racism. Of course, long history of abolitionism too, but damn, the town can really be a cesspool of hate. Now, this is represented well in the actions of the white neighborhoods that were receiving the busloads of black students to be integrated into their very monochromatic student population. The mothers of the neighborhood, all white, awaited the busloads of newcomers to their school. They were a welcome committee of sorts, but the food they carried was rotten and designed to offend and inflict psychic damage. These mothers, many of them with children in tow, you know, the ones that were too young to be in school, they would hurl food and most often choosing to toss bananas, a commentary on how they felt about the new student's race. This was not a one-time thing either. These wonderful mothers would be there for months, even extending it to the following school year, throwing rotten bananas at black students who had the gall to follow the rules. They chose to throw bananas. Do you think they went home thinking to themselves as generally a good person? Ofqual and his fellow machine learners will not stop pointing the mirror back at us, and the choice we have as we stare into our collective reflections is either to accept the truth of the results or to ignore them. Accepting the truth does not mean blindly following the results of the machines. In fact, at this point, accepting the results as true means to accept that we are putting garbage into these machine learning algorithms and we should expect to get garbage out. The only way to fix that is to nourish ourselves in healthier information, more educated choices, and less archaic criteria concerning human rights. Until this happens, we can never expect anything other than a lie that we all tell ourselves is real. Ignoring the results altogether is the other choice, and in many ways, ignoring in this contest means actually paying attention to only the results and not understanding the faults inherent in the conclusions. That's kind of the wacky part of this choice is that it's comprised of actually two diametrically opposed camps. You know, the first being what you would expect as the faithful member of a religion, and the second being the technocrat whose devotion to everything technical leads them into the same wilderness they say they abhor in their opponents of faith. Now, if you think that I'm taking too big of a leap into the pool of algorithms, let's spend some time reviewing just some of the areas of our society that are using algorithms in very much the same manner as the education system of England. Now, we can start with social media. This is one that most of us already know about. All of the online options for social media incorporate algorithms that target every click and every second we spend online. In this realm, algorithms have long been blamed for every ill we ever experience. But social media is hardly the only facet of our world that relies on algorithms or what the author of the Guardian article calls machine learning, which is just a more advanced form of algorithm. He says, quote, the side effects of machine learning within the walled gardens of online platforms are problematic enough, but they become positively pathological when the technology is used in the offline world by companies, government, local authorities, police forces, health services, and other public bodies to make decisions that affect the lives of citizens. Who should get what universal benefits? Whose insurance premiums should be heavily weighted? Who should be denied entry to the UK? Whose hip or cancer operations should be fast-tracked? Who should get a loan or a mortgage? Who should be stopped and searched? Whose children should get a place in which primary school? Who should get bail or parole? And who should be denied them? The list of such decisions for which machine learning solutions are now routinely touted is endless. And the rationale is always the same. More efficient and prompt service. Judgments by impartial algorithms rather than prejudiced, tired, or fallible humans. Value for money in the public sector, and so on. Unquote. 
What Ofqual exposed was the inefficiency of mathematical machine learning in the form of algorithms based on the innate biases that all of our data sets have, including the data sets that went into writing the algorithm. No matter where the data is coming from, if humans compiled it or wrote it, it's going to carry the stink of human ignorance with it. The fact that there was an uprising concerning the students' grades was a front to normal human sensibilities. On top of that, what the author calls machine learning is in fact advanced algorithms that use internal logic in lockstep with this flawed data sets to produce their results. Now, what makes machine learning different than the average just process algorithm that follows a, a series of sort of transparent steps, you know, if not, then, then this, you know, sort of stuff, there's very little understanding of the aforementioned internal logic that the machine learning apparatus is using. Even the programmers who created the thing cannot really understand the logic that is being used to come up with the answers. It's a plot twist right out of a science fiction story. The very monsters we created to make the world more transparent are instead black pits of uncertainty that no human has the abilities to fully understand. What does that mean for our future? Will we ever be able to rein in what Boris Johnson called mutant algorithms? That actually remains to be seen. For me, at least for this episode, it highlights something that I have been saying for some time now. This disconnect as to how we think the world works and how it actually does. This is something that I call the gap. And no, it's not a clothing store, but a divide that separates those in the know and those who are not. This is not something that is a new phenomenon. There's always been a gap in human societies. It's just that this gap has always been consistent and relatively unchanging in the form of regular guys and dudes, for it's always dudes who are in charge. The dudes in charge have used all sorts of methods to run the world. Violence, religion, power, wealth, politics. All of them are part of every human society from the dawn of time until now. Our current gap that we are living is, in fact, not one, but two gaps. One much older and more well-known in the form of religious doctrine and a metaphysical truth. And another younger gap running alongside the older gap, but increasingly veering off on its own path. The path of science, mathematics, and material truth of one discipline or another. Its younger gap is increasingly defined and run by the deep algorithmic thinking of machine learning. And this is the most important part. We have no idea how or why the machine learners are coming up with the answers that we are all so thirsty for. Their logic is impenetrable to the best of human minds. The only other entity that understands a machine learner, or at least has the possibility of understanding it, is another machine learner. No machine learner gives a damn if we get it or not. It's like the end of the fantastic Spike Jones movie, Her. We are just way too slow for them. Now, I want to take a second just to ponder the incredible irony of human beings jumping from one bed made of rules in the form of corporate religion, in which there is a tremendous emphasis on metaphysical truth that cannot be proved, only believed in, and jump right into bed with a set of rules that are based on machine learning, where there is a tremendous emphasis on metalogical truths that cannot be understood fully, only trusted. Now, this is why I have a pet belief that irony is, in fact, some weak force present in the universe, like gravity, but belonging strictly to consciousness instead of being manifest in material matter. But it looks like we are all well on our way to this irony actually being a reality. So how did we get here? 
How do we get to this world that is dominated now by two gaps? And has this ever happened before? Is there something we can learn from our past? Well, lucky for you, dear listener, this is what the whole episode is all about. This uneasy new world defined by this new type of gap. It all starts with what we're going to cover in the remaining time we have. But before we dive into that subject proper, let's spend a little time in review of how we got here. I mean, after all, there's been a substantial gap of a different kind between the last episode and this one. Now, where we last left off, our hero, Algebra, was in its infancy. Caring for the newborn form of math was none other than the self-subscribed father of Algebra, a man named Diophantus, who lived in the city of Alexandria. He is purported to have sired the branch of mathematics called Algebra, though he never used equations and never called it Algebra. So he was most concerned with the dominant form of math practiced in his day, geometry. This view of math, geometric, was Greek in origin, and its everyday use by the ancients has been likened to our use of computers in our time. I mean, for most of us, how our smartphones work is irrelevant to the fact that it does. For the ancient Greeks and the rest of the Western world at the time, geometry was similar. Now, I heard it put, it's much easier to draw a circle or a square in the dirt than it is to add up multiple sets of numbers. So geometry was obviously preferred in a practical way. Most people use it in everyday life to navigate the daily task and solve problems. Now, how geometry worked was left to a small group of specialists who drove the innovation and saturation of geometry to the masses, so to the thinkers of the day. Not too dissimilar to our current situation with our phones and the eggheads in Silicon Valley. For some of the Greeks, the ones who counted themselves as the intelligentsia of their time, math didn't stop with the merely practical. In addition, or more to the point, because of geometry's additional metaphysical qualities, the Greeks started the process of reversing the idea of what you see is what you get. They started us down the road of what I think is what I get, and the rest is merely window dressing. But that wasn't always the case. This was a diametrically opposed view of math that had been in practice for millennia before the Greeks started drawing circles in the dirt. Predating the adoption of geometry was the proto-mathematics of cultures even more ancient than the Greeks. The Egyptians and Mesopotamians, sometimes called the Sumerians, used arithmetical systems of calculation based on their pictographic notation. The most important facet of this early math was, again, practicality. How much food, land, animal feed, etc. was something that humans needed to know. So they started to try and figure out how to do it. Now, I made the argument that the early math of the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians was almost 100% practical, nary a whiff of metaphysical stench to be discerned. They were no equations, just, well, I was going to say word problems, but really they were picture problems, and absolutely none of them. And recall that we have over 1 million tablets from the Mesopotamians to rely on, so we can reference those. And none of them, they, did they ever begin to consider math as anything but a tool? a simple machine like a lever or a pulley. It wasn't until the Greeks began to delve into the nature of numbers and what the numbers themselves could possibly mean that the world of practical math began to venture into the wilderness of the metaphysical. Now, the first attempts at number theory practiced by the Pythagoreans showed both the amazing power of numbers in and of themselves and the amazing ability for humans to convince themselves of just about anything. For the Pythagoreans not only considered numbers for numbers' sake and were so determined to understand what numbers mean that they fell into the rabbit hole altogether, creating a metaphysical unreality consisting of perfection in the form of pure numbers. 
and podcast listener, nothing has been the same since. Beginning right here with the idea that perfection resided somewhere other than in the material world, one of our competing gaps, what I called earlier the older of the two, was first conceived. I mean, not so many words, but the basic concept that would provide the repeatable construct for the coming corporate religious states, which to this day continue to dominate the thoughts of most humans on this planet. I argue that mathematics was the reason we started to have powerful state religions. And the numbers was the power to prove to the people that you had the answers. The ability to understand how the world works was in control of those who understood how math worked. The power inherent in numbers was self-evident. Numbers can present a very close approximation to perfection. They always seem to work. They are always ready to be used. Everyone can understand them regardless of where they come from. How else do you explain something so wonderfully complete? The seeming perfection seen in numbers and math led the collective minds of humans accepting a metaphysical perfection that eventually became our understanding of the Western conception of God. In short order, once perfection was isolated and defined, the corporate religions that were constructed in and around the time of math's metaphysical leap solidified. Now, I'm taking a 100,000-foot view of the process, of course. There are many other facets that go into the world of human thought. I'm not saying that the only reason that religion came into being was because math and more succinctly, the search for understanding numbers. But I'm saying that it played a very important role in the process. I have gone so far as to state that I believe math and our basic intuition for it predates, evolutionary speaking, the formation of human emotions. We as a species developed the basic concepts of math before we started crying or laughing. I'm not saying that we learned to square the circle before we learned to cry at a good film. What I'm saying is that, that the inherent relationship of consciousness and matter developed together and started long before we developed any other aspects of human behavior. This elemental connection between matter and mind started before there was even a mind to call things matter. It is a good way of explaining a lot of things. For instance, it is why math doesn't make us emotional. Why people of completely different belief systems, hated enemies even, will still use the same mathematical techniques, the same mathematical notation, without reservation. It is also why we trust math. It works, almost to perfection. The faith espoused by the believers of the world is in some sense a faith in the explanation of the Pythagoreans and the Plato's. That the world as we sense it is not the real world, not the perfect world. That the world exists but only in one place, the minds of men. Human perfection is only made possible by surrendering the practical and embracing the meta-perfection of the numbers. Now, reaching back to the technology metaphor I used earlier, dudes like Plato were the theoretical computer scientists of their day, like Alan Turing, right? And once the door was opened, the applied people began to build the edifice that became religion, or in Turing's case, the modern world of computing. Now, the metaphor goes deeper. In the case of Turing and his work in computing, the world began to construct the modern computational world on his narrow shoulders, meaning the basic concepts he laid down in the first part of the 20th century have virtually gone unchanged in almost a century. His theoretical universal computer works exactly like the device in your pocket, but at their very core, they are the same machine. And during the 80 years in between the Turing machine and the iPhone, little change has occurred to the basic functioning. They still crunch zeros and ones. There has also been relatively no advancement in the general understanding of how that little device in your hand can do what it does. For most smart device users, there's not much difference between them and the ancient Alexandrian who plopped one of their coins in a holy water dispenser. 
In both cases, the level of understanding nary raises much higher than the level of magic. But the metaphor doesn't stop there. The hits keep coming. The ignorance of the average ancient and the average modern person are very similar when it comes to the mathematics of their day, and this leads to the same conclusion. The ability to be manipulated by those who could put math to use, whether by themselves or by paying someone else to do for them, matters. This would be manifest in things like the pyramids of Egypt, the walls of Babylon, the dome of Hagiophia, and the Florence Cathedral. For most of humanity at the time, these amazing structures were designed and built using math, and it was altogether a different belief that they had, that the common man had, and held toward these amazing structures. What they felt was not great engineering. What they felt was awe. Now, if you are a pilgrim walking the streets of Alexandria, and as you approach your destination, say it's a temple of worship, the doors open on their own, and holy water is dispensed automatically, and large structures appear and move free of any human assistance. What do you think that pilgrim thinks? Wow, these guys do some real crafty work here. I don't think so. There's probably a strong feeling of the miraculous in that them thou pilgrim. Now fast forward to our modern world. Now I'm not saying that people think their iPhone is a miracle. I am saying that that word is how most people would describe how their iPhone works. They may not attribute it a spiritual meaning, but its functioning is as mysterious as any of the works of their professed deity. In both cases, the idea for me is not about the belief in a supernatural deity. It's more about driving the common sense of the day using technology and math. The tastemakers at Apple are not much different than the priests of the temple. They both feel that they know what you want before you do. And they go on to prove that fact by watching you fall in line with what they are selling because it helps the average guy in the street make sense of their world. I mean, math didn't die in the West in the Dark Ages. It was just put to use for one reason and one reason only, to be used by the corporate religions to demonstrate their singular position as the intermediary between God and the common people. Now, one look at the magnificent works of architecture that were produced in the forms of temples and churches. I mean, what are those edifices if not a mathematical representation of power that comes from mastering the use of geometric knowledge? Now, in these awe-inspiring buildings was where the common people would go and try and get a handle on the unknowns of the world. The big questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What is going to happen to me when I die? When it comes to religion, this is not a very big stretch. It is pretty much the advertised intent of what religious practice is supposed to do. Now, on the other hand, is that what your iPhone is doing? At first blush, it may not appear to so. But if you consider the device in its totality, meaning as a gateway to information, then it becomes more apparent. Especially when you bring religion back in mind and consider that those big questions, do they, the religions, really answer any of them? Now, of course, you can get the blanket statement that the deity works in mysterious ways. Always an effective answer if you don't want to give an answer. But if one were to use a little bit more effort, you can see that religion is less of a quick answer is quick scheme and much more of an access point for the common man. An access point that provides for them institutions comprised of experts who have worked hard on their behalf to understand the complexities of accurate knowledge and offer up tools to allow you a greater understanding of life's mysteries. Basically, a gateway to information. Information that is curated by human hand to achieve an intended goal. In religion's case, all glory to God and keeping the walls of the monastery strong. Now, some of the terms must be changed, but the basic themes remain pretty much intact. The modern computational mathematical world in the form of algorithms is the complexities. And the main way we interact with that world is through our phones. 
The information that we get from our devices is also curated, mostly by inhuman processes like Ofqual, to achieve an intended goal. In Apple's case, all profits to the shareholders and keeping the stock price strong. In any event, the practical proto-arithmetic that was being practiced by the Egyptians and Mesopotamians was a math that existed only in the world of everyday existence. Now, if you were to think of a pyramid, not the Egyptian one, but like a, uh, the nutritional pyramid that you had on the wall during grade school, and but the bread and the grains on the bottom, and then like vegetables, and then fruits, and then like fats and sugars at the very top, right? Anyway, you have this pyramid, but instead of food, think about it, what, what culture needs, okay? For the average Sumerian or Egyptian, math would exist at the bread level. It was a basic necessity for life. More importantly for this discussion, it being math, never left that base of the pyramid for the Sumerian or the Egyptian. Now, on top in the Sumerian or Egyptian period, on top of that base level with all the tools of how to you know, live, the additional levels of those cultures, the, the pyramid was made up of things like wealth, power, and right at the top, most important of all, lasting fame. You know, to be honored in the minds of other men, especially in posterity after you died, was the pinnacle of the ancient pyramid, which is kind of an interesting twist. You know, prior to the Greeks and their metaphysics, the most important consideration in the lives of men was not what was happening in their own heads, but what was being thought of by someone else's. Of course, the Greeks changed all that. They placed math not only at the base of their pyramid, but at every other level all the way up. But then they also flipped the pyramid upside down. The perfect form, represented best by geometry, was the starting and ending point for the Greeks. Access to everything, including the material world, is due to these forms. If not for them, there would be no reality. We know these forms innately, but indirectly, as we are too imperfect to view perfection. Now, once you accepted the perfect forms as the basis of all reality, you would be able to move up this inverted pyramid of the Greeks towards much more mundane pursuits, very similar to the Mesopotamian and Egyptians, such as wealth, prestige, and of course, the chance to have their names echo down through history. Now, unlike their brothers to the east, the Greeks, however, established something called the good. That's with a capital G this metaphysical non-category that defines all other categories, all other forms, even though itself, the good with a capital G, is formless, or I guess more accurately, is without form. Now, this thought is 100% Plato. He had to do this. He had to create the good with a capital G in order to make sense of his elaborate metaphysical system of the immortal soul and transcendence and such. I mean, everything had to come from something. And in the mind of Plato, that something was the good. And only through this good with a capital G could one access true knowledge and start getting real answers. In a weird sense of sort of trickle-up knowledge, Plato placed the narrow point of perfection at the base, creating an extremely narrow access point to knowledge. Recall, he even carved it over the entrance of his academy. Let no one who does not know geometry enter here. So on one hand, the ancient Egyptian accepted his world as it was. The ability to make sense of his world was not tied to his ability to understand an inner perfection. His gods were real in the form of the pharaoh, so there was really no great mystery to existence. Any work in the field of metaphysics was strictly a genealogical endeavor. In this world, math, as it was just another tool, was available to anyone and no great importance was placed on its existence. In contrast, the ancient Greek asked a lot more questions than his Egyptian counterpart. 
The fruit born out of these investigations was to remove the consideration of what the other man was thinking or remembering about you and replace it with what you yourself and your own thoughts determine is the correct course of action. In a sense, the Greeks began the internalization of reality, taking it as something self-evident and seeding some doubt into the faith that what we are sensing and what we are thinking are the same things. Now, Plato, the architect of this burgeoning kingdom of the mind, was no fool. If one was to place the responsibility of reality into the minds of the individual man, then there needed to be safeguards put in place. Hence, Plato's creation of the good with a capital G. While all thoughts were listened to, only the good with a capital G ones are worth a damn. Certain glimpses of the good were made available to humanity, almost exclusively based on mathematics, specifically geometry. But it took years of study and contemplation to achieve any sense of the real that existed in the minds of all men. Now, the ancient Egyptian knew all he needed to know about reality. The world was the world he encountered with his senses. The Greek determined that they knew nothing, nothing other than there was something better, more perfect, more mysteriously responsible for our reality, and it can only be known in our minds. Now, the reason I'm focusing on this is because it actually brings to light what I wanted to talk about in this episode. It is fitting there has been a bit of a delay in getting this episode produced because what I want to discuss is gaps. Distances between one event and another event. Or more to the point for this show is the distances between the common understanding of how the world works and the actual way that the world works. Now, as I mentioned earlier, generally speaking, I would venture that there's always a gap of this sort in human societies of all stripes. The rank-and-file tribesman has no idea how the shaman does what they do. They just do their part to make sure the shaman can continue to do whatever it is they are doing as keeping them all alive. Now, in some ways, the gap in this situation is both enormous and incredibly small. Since the shaman actually has no effect on the survivability of the tribe, then the gap between what is known and what can be known is infinite because there's nothing to be known. So anything, you just make it up. Now, on the other hand, the day-to-day grind of a tribe of nomads applies the stark reality to the fact that the skills needed to survive as a nomadic tribesman doesn't require a degree from Caltech. I am no way selling them short, but in a life or death struggle to survive, there is no time for the details. If you haven't eaten in two days, you're not going to make sure that you have a clean napkin in hand before digging in. I mean, most of human life required absolutely no manners or rules whatsoever. This was not by choice, since we obviously love that shit, but humans, for most of our existence as a species, just didn't have the time or the inclination to consider such things. I mean, another way to understand the infinitely large and small paradox of this type of gap is that even though there was an infinity of options open to the proto-metaphysics at the time, None of them were real, so when the average nomad on the street, when asking big questions like, why am I here, and what is the meaning of life, would get one stock answer, because we, the gods, the shamans, the witch doctors, you know, pick your poison, we said so. So this answer is at once big, meaning that once the answer of the mysterious ways the world works is given, all things are on the table, as they could be anything, since it's just conjecture and guessing at that point. At the same time, This type of answer is extremely small in scope as well. It is a simple A to B answer, and that is the end of it. No need to ask it again or to keep investigating. In many ways, up until the Greeks, this type of world, the one ruled by shaman and their political allies, was the dominant form of human society. Magic, ghosts, monsters, ancestors dominated the metaphysical wilderness of early humanity. 
So this infinitely small large thing was perpetuated throughout human societies long before they began trying to adopt alternatives. We have talked extensively about the Greeks, but they were hardly alone when it comes to adjusting to and managing their version of this gap. Coincidentally, about the same time, the Chinese were learning the words of Confucius, as were the Indians hearing the thoughts of Buddha. But throughout it all, magic was still there. As human cultures in places such as China, India, and Greece began to become proficient in surviving, and in some cases actually being able to put some distance between the everyday grind of not dying of starvation, and in this new petridus of human behavior, though remember to our standards it would still come across as practically Stone Age in its creature comforts, it was light years from the nomadic lifestyle that had defined the short, nasty lives of humans for almost a million years. The modicum of space and time that was carved out for human leisure was put to use in many ways by these early human societies to bring under control the chaos and despair that afflicted most people just trying to make ends meet. You might think this was a time when major religions would begin to spring up. In some cases, that was true. The Jewish religion had been around for some time before the Greeks hit the scene. The Persians, in what is now Iran, were professing a monotheistic religion called Zoroastrianism. In many ways, these religions were started with a similar intent, an effort to pull, kicking and screaming, humanity from its barbaric past into the future. I mean, spend a few minutes with the Old Testament or Google Zoroastrianism and check out all the practical rules being laid out concerning what to eat, who to sleep with, and who to listen to when it comes to disputes. In many ways, the super early entrance into the religion game were guidebooks for this new stage in human society. But they were not alone. In around the same time, other major centers of human development were also searching for a way out of the vicious cycle that was human existence, a cycle that was ruled by magic and superstition. In China, Confucius worked against the magical theory of how the world works using pragmatism. In India, Buddha chose to practice removing oneself from the world in general, an effort to escape the magical misconceptions of the world that caused so much misery. And the Greeks were establishing a formal process for taking the whole thing internal. And though I am no expert on Confucianism, I would postulate that the gap between common sense and how the world actually works in society defined by his teachings would be on the smaller side. I mean, there is very little metaphysics in his system. It's all about manners and social order, which is sort of the essence of a small gap, right? Likewise, the gap in a Buddhist society governed by the teachings of Buddha should be similarly small, but for an altogether different reason, namely the fact that Reaching nirvana means the negation of the self, the you, your existence, this reality. Goodbye, Jason. Goodbye, everything, including the gap, right? Now, of course, in between the nomadic tribal life and the worlds ushered in by the likes of Confucius and Buddha, there were our friends, the Mesopotamians and Egyptians. Now, we've spent many words on these cultures, and I only bring them up again to mention that the gap they had to deal with would also be relatively small. This is due to the limitations in technology, as well to the lack of a coherent metaphysical system. I mean, put another way, life was simple. That brings us to the internal, eternal world of the Greeks. It is internal because it exists only in our minds, or more accurately, outside the capacity of our minds to truly comprehend, so our mind does its best with a weak facsimile, and eternal because it, the truth, the forms of perfection that form our understanding of reality transcend all space and time. The internal, eternal nature of this brand of metaphysics, while attempting to minimize the gap, is in fact expanding it. 
This expansion of the gap will form the basis for the age of religion that will follow in the wake of the collapse of the ancient world. This larger gap is in some sense really just the same old gap with a little bit more depth to it, meaning that the previous gap was defined between real life and life governed by magic and superstition. I pointed out that the distance between those two magnetic poles was both extremely large and extremely small. Why? Because, boom, the essence of simplicity. But at the same time, anything a human mind can reason with becomes fair game. In other words, anything goes. For society to function and grow, this issue needed to be dealt with. How best to keep the gap, or at least convince enough people that this gap is small. That the way the world works for the average guy is how the world works for everyone, and most importantly, understood in a similar, common manner. The Greeks took a good hack at the problem, seeing the problem and addressing it by flipping the prevailing wisdom on its head. For the Greeks, it was no longer why, because, it was more like why, because there is a more perfect world out there, and due to our limitations as humans, we can only catch a faint impression as fleeting and illusionary as shadows created by a fire. To best understand why one should educate oneself to the perfection of geometry first and foremost is to understand the perfection of mathematics is to ponder the good. Everything else flows from that. But we will never be able to see the good. We will never be able to truly understand the good. Trapped inside our mortal coils, we can only toil for the merest of crumbs of knowledge of the good. Luckily for us, our souls, which are independent of our bodies, are immortal, and once freed from the burdens of life in this limited form, our souls will be free to join the good. Now, to be fair, calling this Greek is not very accurate. This idea in no way represents a consensus of Greek thought. There are many competing theories to this one. However, this is the theory espoused by the most important of all Greek thinkers, the one and only Plato. There is no getting around the fact that this man's thoughts and beliefs are deeply rooted in all of Western thought. There is no real Mount Rushmore of Greek thought. There's Mount Plato, and then there's everybody else. For me, one of the most stunning achievements of Plato was his decision to tie answers to mathematics. You may want to give this credit to Pythagoras, but as I covered in a previous episode, there is serious doubt as to the existence of an actual person named Pythagoras, and all that we do know comes from one main source. You guessed it, Plato. By tying the answer to the question, why, to some logical, in his mind, perfect, was a real stroke of genius for Plato. He was attempting to close the gap with math. He was saying, look, there's no reason to go wandering off into the wilderness of the mind. There are perfectly logical structures inside there that are, in fact, more reliable than your senses. Your actual interaction with the world is a mirage of a greater, more logical, more perfect world of the good. Which, if you want to check under the hood, you will notice that this baby is powered by grade A premium high-test mathematics. Gone are the days of rolling bones and reading animal entrails. Here, take it for a spin. And boy, have we ever done that. And in doing so, we have created an enormous gap in our modern lives. This is because most of us still ascribe to some form of a platonic metaphysical system. A version of the good with a capital G. This is a system under all the trappings of religion. If you pop the hood, you're going to find a mathematical foundation powering it. Left to its own devices, a culture thusly defined as being ruled by such a system can exist. This is what the Dark Ages was all about. But math is more than that. Math was not going to be defined simply as the basis for corporate religion. 
And that part of math, the part that escaped the metaphysical doldrums of Plato and his progeny and struggled to survive the tumultuous times at the end of the ancient world, you know, the fall of Rome, the sacking of Alexandria, the rise of the Age of Darkness. But survive it, it would. And in time, it would grow and flourish, extending its reach to every nook and cranny in virtually every pocket in every hand of every human on the planet. Plato's world of perfection is still with us. It has just been boat raced by a different type of math that barely escaped the attempted black hole that religious leaders of the West tried to create after the fall of Rome. Plato's world of perfection has remained basically static for the past 2,000 years, while the little train that could, math in the form of algebra, continued to evolve into the world-controlling force that it is today. Now recall our friend Ofqua the machine learner. What was the takeaway from that? That a metalogical process had laid bare the inherent biases of our thought? Hardly. How about how people feel about the advanced machine learning that drives their social media feeds? Do they take any responsibility for the garbage they are consuming, or more succinctly, why algorithms are targeting them with lies and untruths? Nope. What makes this a completely new issue for humanity to deal with is not the fact that there is a large gap between the common understanding of how the world works and how it actually does. As I've stated many times, this is pretty much the current state of affairs for any human society. It is also not about the fact that we are dealing with two gaps at the same time. While it is not a super common occurrence, clashes of gaps have happened throughout human history. No, what makes our situation one that certainly feels to me like an existential threat is not either of those things. It is the fact that for the first time, the parallel nature of competing gaps is eroding as one gap, the newer one based on algebra, is not only moving up, but it's moving away from the older metaphysical-based gap. This is a crucial difference. In past gap conflicts, say between political factions or religious sects, the parallel nature of the gaps, the running concurrently besides each other until one is absorbed into the other or the other just stops running, the basic direction that they were traveling does not change. Meaning the humans existing under the gap that survives the conflicts of the past simply pick up the trail and continue forward in the same direction they were already traveling. Our gap problem is different because for the first time, one of the gaps is moving not only in front of the other gap, but it is also moving away in a wholly new direction. Now, if my imagery is working at all, I hope you see the problem in your mind's eye. If this type of unzippering of reality begins to happen in earnest, there is literally no telling what is going to happen to human society as a whole and to the human species. If you think I'm being dramatic, so be it. But this type of activity, the severing of what used to define us as common human consciousness, could very well be the start of a new evolutionary branch of Homo sapiens sapiens. Now, at some point, I started a different podcast that was solely dedicated to discussing our current version of the gap. I have a long-held belief that we are currently, as we speak, living through a time of extreme gappiness. You know, gaps between what is thought to be how our modern world works and how it actually does, the gaps between the two gaps. You know, this I've argued these with my friends as large problems. Are they? And I guess it's a hard question just to answer unequivocally. So far, I have not found an instance where a society was living under the strain of the type of gaps that we are. The gap that exists between the algorithmic network version of our world that is driving what we consume, put into our mind and into our bodies, in a more focused way that has ever been achieved under their previous gap, religion. 
And one more interesting thing here is that I have speculated in this episode that both our current world governed by computational process and the previous world order defined by organized religion are both based on math. I've been riffing on the mathematical parts of religion for a while now, establishing clear-cut evidence that the metaphysical world of platonic forms created from geometric reason established a belief in a capital G good that defined perfection that is only understood through intense study and sacrifice. The soul exists in our bodies but is not part of our physical self. It is immortal and yearns to reach perfection and be as one with the capital G good. Now, all of this is from Plato's love of math. Now, modern societies are advancing forward with the same world defined by mathematics. This mathematics is not the perfection of Plato or the simple arithmetic of the Sumerians. The world of math that grew out of the ashes of the ancient world is based on algebra, and up until now, there has been no such beast in the annals of human history. And that's where we pick up our story of algebra. Fleeing the ruins of Alexandria like Aeneas from Troy, after being abandoned by the West, algebra, ever the survivor, did something to disprove the adage that you can never go home again. For after the final sacking of Alexandria, the seat of human intellect shifted back to a familiar place, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, where our old buddy Sargon used to prowl the plain, creating the world's first empire. But the Sumerians are long gone at this point. In their stead are the Muslims, the fresh new faces on the scene of corporate religion. Islam, for me, proves two basic principles at once. Number one, history will repeat itself. Number two, nature abhors a vacuum. The Islamic religion came into existence in or around 622 AD. Now, its founder, Muhammad, was from Mecca, which is in Saudi Arabia. And putting aside all the warring and palace intrigues, uh, the opportunity for Islam to come into being and its ability to spread as rapidly as it did, in some part, has to be attributable to the power vacuum created by the collapse of the Roman Empire and the actions of the early leaders of the Holy Roman Empire that took its place. So sort of like vacuum, meet Muhammad. Now, I know very little concerning the Islamic religion. It is undoubtedly metaphysical, which is probably all I need to know. Now, one observation is the difference in what I would call marketing material. Taking in the other two Judeo-Christian religions, you trace a line from chosen people to forgiven people, and thanks to Muhammad, submitted people. Now, from the standpoint of public relations, it is clear at the time of Muhammad, and especially roughly a century after his death, Islam and the Muslim culture as a whole was seen as the cultural and intellectual standard of its day. They, of course, inherited this mantle from the likes of the Greeks in the form of the Alexandrians. Now, for many of the early rulers of Islamic culture, having a robust scientific understanding of the world was an important jewel in their crown, you know, a nice property in their portfolio. I mean, just like the Romans before them. It also couldn't have been lost on the leaders and commoners alike, the stark difference between the dreary life of a Westerner in, say, 800 AD and the gilded existence of a Muslim in an empire that stretched from Spain to India. Now, our story of math picks up in the epicenter of Islamic political, cultural, and intellectual power. The city that most of us know for completely different reasons, but in this time, it rivaled and some say even surpassed Alexandria in riches and influence. The city is Baghdad, and mathematics is a big deal in the biggest city in the Islamic empire. Now, after about 75 years of factions warring over uh, Muhammad's body and, you know, what comes next, fighting for control, basically, the seat of power settles on the fertile plain between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Math has returned home. Almost as if they knew it, the leaders of the city created the House of Wisdom, 
a place that would be likened to its more famous predecessor in Egypt, the Library of Alexandria. Beginning in the late 8th century and continuing long into the 9th century, the golden age of Baghdad was the stuff of legend. Literally. The fable 1001 Arabian Nights was penned during this time of worldliness that was going down in old Sargon's backyard. In keeping with its role as descendant of Alexandria, during this time Baghdad was an extremely liberal place to practice one's beliefs. The city was full of Christians, Jews, pagans, Zoroastrians, Buddhists. It was a place, much in keeping with tradition, where all lines of thought were considered. On top of that list was mathematics. This is where I would really show my ignorance if I were to start to speculate on how math is embedded into the Islamic culture. As I mentioned earlier, the system is based on a metaphysical perfect being, so I think I've covered that topic in past comments concerning religions in general. Now, lucky for us, there is plenty of mathematical meat on the bone to discuss. The main reason for this is the subject of today's podcast, a man named Al-Khwarizmi. He was a leading intellectual of the day in the leading intellectual center in the leading intellectual city in the world. He was a member of the House of Wisdom and is the man who saved algebra. Now, some say he invented it. Some say he copied it. All I can discern from the information I reviewed is that without Al-Khwarizmi, we could have lost algebra forever. So regardless if he's a thief or a genius, we all owe him a debt of gratitude. Now, if you Google the guy, you can see a stamp that was produced to commemorate his contributions to Islam and mathematics. You know, this doesn't mean anything, but the stamp makes him look just like the bad guy from the Aladdin film. You know, the animated one, not the one with Will Smith. I mean, he, he looks just like that guy. I think his name is Jafar. So Al-Khwarizmi looks just like Jafar. And this is when you get to the weird part. Al-Khwarizmi's full name, Abdul Jafar Muhammad Ibn Musa Al-Khwarizmi, you get Jafar. Whoa. Now, the part of his name we most commonly use, Al-Khwarizmi, is the part of his name that indicates that the man was from. Khwarizmi means he was from a place in what is modern-day Uzbekistan, called Khwarizm or Khwarim, making him of Persian descent. This means that most scholars think he was raised a Zoroastrian, as most Persians were. Now, it's important to note that Muslims in power were mainly Arabs, so other cultures, especially once powerful empires like Persian ones, found it best to renounce their belief in the ancient Zoroaster and take on the faith of their Islamic brothers and sisters. And that's exactly what Al-Khwarizmi did. Most of the works that have survived through history include a robust prayer to his caliph, leader of his Islamic religion, like the Pope in the West, and to God. Now here is his shout out to the guy in charge when he wrote his most famous book, Kitab Algebra Wal Al-Muqabala. Quote, Praise be God for his bounty towards those who deserve it by virtuous acts. He set Muhammad, on whom the blessing of God repose, with the mission of a prophet, long after any messenger appeared when justice had fallen into neglect, and when the true way of life was sought for in vain. Through him he was cured of blindness, and saved through him from perdition, and increased through him what before was small, and collected before him what before was scattered. Praise be God, our Lord, and may his glory increase, and may all his names be hallowed besides whom there is no God, and may his benediction rest on Muhammad the prophet and his descendants. Unquote. Quite a mouthful. Thanks to the book Al-Khwarizmi, Father of Algebra and Trigonometry by Bridget Lim and Corona Brazina for that quote. Thanks, ladies. It is apparent from that rather lengthy shout-at that regardless of how liberal the world of 9th century Baghdad was, 
One was not free just to go off willy-nilly into the intellectual wilderness without paying proper homage to the ruling power and beliefs of the time. If you wanted entrance into the house of wisdom, you needed to be clear that no matter what you did, it was all done with an eye and ear to metaphysical perfection that didn't choose you or ask you to love your neighbor. Instead, you were asked to obey. Obeyance was key to a long, illustrious life in the world of Islam. But I'm not going to belabor the point, which I know is a little bit out of character for me. Bottom line is that despite its many differences to the existing corporate religions, at its core, Islam is just another reboot of the same old, worn story of prophets, chosen ones, power, superstition, violence, war, death and destruction, all in the name of a man, Muhammad in this case, and an unknowable, unreachable, metaphysical ideal that keeps humanity chasing its proverbial tail for centuries, trying to appease the unpeasable. But lucky for us, I'm not interested in treading over this well-worn ground. What is more interesting to me, at least in this episode, is how, in one of the most intractable places in human history, the strict machine that is Islamic thought, the future of human civilization came into being. Not only ushering in our modern world of mathematics, but also, as an unintended consequence, planting the seed that would become the most dire gap issue in human history. Thanks to the efforts of Al-Khwarizmi and his other House of Wisdom colleagues, the world of algebra was given a name and a purpose. So how exactly was this accomplished? Well, let's take a look at that book again. Kitab Algebra Wa A Mukabala. When you translate it, you get the condensed book on restoration and balancing. But it's not about the English words, though they are pretty interesting for a math book. No, there's something very familiar about that second term in the original Arabic title of the book, algebra, A-L hyphen J-A-B-R, which by itself means restoration or completion. And if it sounds familiar to you, it should. The wonderful concept of restoration that is behind the title of the mathematics that emerged from the wastelands of the Western world was nurtured back to health and given a name, algebra, the restorer, algebra, the completer, and with that simple act of making something out of nothing, giving it a name, a classification that was able to be agreed upon by a good number of people, therefore slowly ossifying into common sense. It may have been something before al Khwarizmi gave it a name, but you can't tell me what it was because it, naming algebra, was not yet in existence. So what was it? That arithmetic that everyone was doing so algebraically? It was whatever they, the practitioners, chose to call it. After Al-Khwarizmi, there was something called algebra that had not existed before. After Al-Khwarizmi, the modern world had its power source. The modern world had found its mathematics. It is no wonder that once the world was introduced to the process of restoration, the process of completion, that it would become an influential part of human society and in time would usurp the very powers that people like Al-Khwarizmi spent so much time praising. Now, how enticing would something described as a restorer be to a world that was so fragmented and wallowing in the metaphysical mire. Well, as an example, centuries later, writing what would become one of the world's first forays into fictional narratives called a novel, I wonder if that's a pun, uh, from the novel Don Quixote, Cervantes used the term algebristas for the bone setters because of their particular ability to restore. But it goes further than that, and of course it does. And recall in the previous episode that the Egyptian scribe said that the basic rules of arithmetic in the Alms Papyrus is where you could find, quote, the entrance into the knowledge of all existing things and all obscure secrets. It was almost like there was some feeling that the unknown was slowly being uncovered and understood, all within the confines of a practical, pragmatic practice of doing math. 
Now, Ahmes and his fellow Egyptians were not alone. The Jewish mystic and mathematician Abraham bar Hia Hadnasi, writing a couple centuries after Al-Khwarizmi, had this to say about algebra. Quote, He who wishes correctly to learn the ways to measure areas and to divide them must necessarily thoroughly understand the general theorems of geometry and arithmetic, on which the teaching of measurement rests. If he has completely mastered these ideas, he can never deviate from the truth. Unquote. And maybe this is the fact that caused the Western world to stop doing math. Never deviate from the truth. Well, that would be a direct affront to the existing version of truth that ran through the metaphysical world of corporate religion. Now, for a newer player in the scene like Islam, it, at least at first, appeared that hitching their wagon to this new mathematics was perfectly acceptable. Now, you have to wonder how much of this has to do with showing up their competitors to the West. And it is quite a historical and intellectual trolling job to rest the mantle of the intellectual center of the world. It only makes sense to work hard to make this decision seem like a good one, but overall, it was too good to last. The metaphysical truth of Islam would, for a short time, share the stage with intellectual endeavors, only for a third of the time of the place that the House of Wisdom was modeled after, the library at Alexandria. Infighting, violence, inquisition, and revolution would tear down all the works of men like Al-Khwarizmi. Then, to add insult to injury, around the 1200s AD, the Muslim world would be laid waste by Genghis Khan and his Mongol horde, almost completely wiping Islam off the map. It was such a complete devastation that was wrought by the Mongols in that area of the world, places like Baghdad never fully recovered. But I'm getting ahead of myself, per usual. Back in the golden age of the House of Wisdom, figures like Al-Khwarizmi were working to usher in the modern world. This was done in many ways. We have covered the first way, the creation of the branch of mathematics called algebra. And the book compiled by Al-Khwarizmi gave a name to this new process of completion and restoration. When you read up on this event, it becomes apparent that there is no consensus on what Al-Khwarizmi actually did. Did he invent algebra? Was he just a compiler, a scribe that copied and translated the mathematical works of Alms, Diophantus, and Greeks? There is compelling evidence that, in fact, that was exactly what Al-Khwarizmi was doing. And if that is the case, he is at least lucky that he still gets credit for it and not some Anglican bargain hunter who happened to stumble across a scroll in a marketplace. And I have already stated that just this, just being the safe harbor where algebra could rest after it was savagely attacked and left to die by the religions of the West was enough. Without this basic act of intellectual empathy, who knows where human civilization would be? Most certainly, wherever it would have ended up, it would have been a dark place. When we dig into the details of what Al-Khwarizmi did, we can see the foundations of a world forming. Again, this is not mere hyperbole, as the very works that he will produce will lead directly to the Western world once again, finding the practical truth of mathematics that would usher in the Renaissance and begin the West's slow ascent out of the darkness and into the light. First, algebra got a name. In his book, Algebra wa al-Mukabala, Al-Khwarizmi put not too fine a point on it. He was not attempting to create a wholly new branch of mathematics. That would not have even occurred to him. His main purpose was simple. He states so himself, describing his effort as a, quote, short work on calculating by the rules of completion and reduction, confining it to what is easiest and most useful in arithmetic, such as men constantly require in cases of inheritance, legacies, partition, lawsuits, and trade in all their dealings with one another, or where the measuring of lands, the digging of canals, geometrical computation, and other objects of various sorts and kinds are concerned. Unquote. 
Al-Khwarizmi was concentrating on the exact opposite of what Plato and his fellow Greeks had attempted to do. His quest was not to search the inward recesses of metaphysical perfection. Instead, he chose to focus on the everyday needs of the people. And when you take in totality the amount of actual math that Al-Khwarizmi produced, it is not difficult to surmise that this small little footnote concerning his overall aim was probably his most important contribution to the world of algebra. Not only was he responsible for the name of algebra, but he was also responsible for establishing once and for all a place for algebra in the pantheon of mathematics, the branch that is dedicated to the humdrum events of everyday life. Was he the first to do this? Nope. But he was the last, in a sense. I mean, all the great mathematical names of the past that we have referenced, chronologically speaking, didn't exist for the Western world attempting to climb out of the pit of the Dark Ages. You know, that Alms papyrus? That wasn't rediscovered until the 19th century. Equally absent was Diophantus' work, hidden behind the destruction of the library in Alexandria and the haze of the religious melee that would erupt between Christianity and Islam and engulf most of the known world. The only real continuity that could be had was thanks to Al-Khwarizmi. His approach was genius in its simplicity, as the man himself states, quote, When I consider what people generally want in calculating, I find that it is always a number. I always observe that every number is composed of units, and that any number may be divided into units. Moreover, I found that every number which may be so expressed from 1 to 10 surpasses the preceding by one unit. Afterwards, the 10 is doubled and tripled, just as before. The units were thus arise 20, 30, etc., until 100, then 100 is doubled and tripled in the same manner as the units and the tens up to the thousands. So forth until the utmost limitation of numeration. Unquote. Sounds a heck of a lot like first grade math. And in a sense, it was. The world that had produced the fable of 1001 Arabian Nights had also just literally let the genie out of the bottle. These basic concepts, the understanding that all of us are just doing math to get a number, not a glimpse of perfection such as Plato professed, allowed simple arithmetic to peel itself from the metaphysically challenged world geometric perfection. And if we were to stop here, on this contribution alone, Al-Khwarizmi would deserve the recognition he receives. But this remarkable man was not yet done. Coming to the conclusion that the man is always just searching for a number, Al-Khwarizmi would note that this new way of doing practical math needed some help. To this end, he wrote another book, whose title, when translated, reads, Treaties on Calculation with Hindu Numerals. Now, in this book, Al-Khwarizmi introduces to Islam, and by extension the rest of the world, the very same numbers that we use today. As a kid, I learned that the numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 0 were an Arabic invention. Nowadays, it is thought that like the rules of arithmetic, Al-Khwarizmi compiled the learning and knowledge of a neighbor into something his people could use. Now, it is important to remember that up until this point, no one was writing equations as we know them today. Stuff like a squared plus b squared equals c squared didn't exist. Like all of his predecessors, Al-Khwarizmi wrote math in narrative style, word problems. A lot of this had to do with the clumsy numbering system that the region was still using. Namely, our friend, the sexagesimal system, you know, based on 60 that the Sumerians were using. They had a better way, and for Al-Khwarizmi, there was, according to him, a need. Quote, we have decided to explain Indian calculating techniques using the nine characters and to show how, because of their simplicity and conciseness, these characters are capable of expressing any number. This includes the tenth figure in the shape of a circle, so as not to confuse the positions, unquote. And with that, the mathematical world finally had its zero. And a simple and concise way to represent any number 
and thanks to the recursive power of algebra, it became a simple and concise way to represent every single aspect of our natural world. Of course, this wouldn't happen overnight, and there were many other individuals and forces that would go on to formulate our modern world of mathematics. But without contributions of this one man, this single individual hailing from a small town in Uzbekistan, we may never have gotten there. And since this is a podcast all about the little things that make you go, no shit, there's one more thing to include in telling the story of Al-Khwarizmi. Since all of his books were written in Arabic in order to make the information contained within more accessible, they would need to be translated. Now, in time, that is exactly what would happen. Now, most often, his books were translated into Latin. Now, the title of the book on Hindu numbers, for instance, was translated into Latin as Algorithmi di Numero Indurorum, which in English means Al-Khwarizmi concerning the Hindu art of reckoning. Now, that first word in the Latin translation, Algorithmi, was the Latinized version of Al-Khwarizmi's name. It was also translated as Algorithmi, Algorithmus, Algorithme, Algorithm, and it finally settled into Algorithm. Starting in the West, in the late Middle Ages, leading up to the Renaissance, if you were doing math using the new Arabic system, you were doing Algorithm. Of course, today, we are very familiar with the term Algorithm, as it has become the term we use for any algebraic, nay, almost any process, mathematical or not, that uses a series of ordered, repeatable steps. Mechanistic flavor of math, the simple logic of the numbers, an unchanging set of rules that every human understands, not only in their language or because their religious leaders tell them so, but deep down in the very building blocks of what we call our being, we feel a kinship to this mechanism. That should come as no surprise as the process of life, transforming through the rules set forth by evolution and mathematics, defining and repurposing the rules to understand and manipulate the material world, evolved hand in hand. Now, borrowing the phrase, in the beginning, there was one gap. It was defined by what humans knew and what they could know. The distance between those two poles was small and, in most cases, easily traversable for the common person. But the original gap began to widen, as more and more time and effort was spent by humanity to make sense of their world. As we have said already in this episode, the gap expanded to infinite size, if only metaphysically, so as more and more humans grasped for power over their fellow people. This was done at first through magic and superstition, and then along came wealth and status, and all those were mixed into a broth called religion that has done one thing successfully throughout its history, and that is keep itself in power. By whatever means necessary, and I do mean any means. But all along... Standing in the shadows, popping up its head from time to time, was the truly ancient connection between mathematics and consciousness. As societies were beginning to coalesce, the relationship between practical world that would someday be ruled by algebra began to form a new gap. This one was one of practicality, hearkening back to the prehistoric days of simple life and death, only this new way of using our consciousness to understand the world in the form of numbers not only helped us with our everyday world, It also, by extension, helped us lift ourselves out of the primordial battleground that is life on this planet. This world of numbers became so dependable, so revered, that it became the very definition of perfection, and in a twist that is common among the history of humans, numbers became the basis for our unshakable faith in a higher power, and a world outside of our own that was better, purer, more perfect than our world, a perfection the material world could never achieve. It seemed that, for a time and for some people, Math's only job was to substantiate this faith, this system of belief. But to bring back one of my favorite quotes to paraphrase 
Uh, algebra finds a way. And starting with Al Khwarizmi and carrying on to this very day, the way that algebra found was the one that created a new group to grow alongside the existing gap of the world, according to corporate religion. So what we have now is two competing gaps. This competition is most likely why we are dealing with such a crazy-ass world. The older gap, the one managed by corporate religion, it's definitely still here. It's just not in charge anymore, and it's pissed. The newer gap is not a glory hound, so it's not commonly understood where it stands in the pecking order of our world affairs. Now, this type of gap friction is not new to humanity. It is a symptom of, of every conflict and shows up in every post-mortem ever done on a sustained duration of human suffering. An old gap evolving too slowly and being bypassed by a newer version more suited for the environment. These type of things never end well. But that isn't the real issue that we are currently dealing with. We are not dealing with the same old parallel gaps racing towards a common goal as defined solely by men in charge and what they tell you to believe. Instead, this new gap, the one that is growing between the two gaps, is not one defined simply by which one is further ahead or behind. No. The growing distance between the gaps themselves is the issue. And that issue that I see is that there will be no common understanding or common resolution that can be had once the two gaps diverge from their parallel trajectory. Populations ascribing to their respective systems will simply see the other group living under their chosen gap as the other, the enemy, the ones not to be treated as humans. Our past as collectively human is fading fast. No matter which side of this gap conflict you find yourself, you probably feel little sympathy for the other side. After all, it's their choice to live that way, to think that way, right? Now, in some ways, that is true. But in others, equally important to remember, the ways that human species is remarkable for its ability to work together, willingly, to achieve a goal. History is drenched in the stories of friendship, love, and all the trappings of the positive side of our evolved hypersocial design. We have literally evolved into a cooperation machine hellbent on being social. And in most cases in human history, when the shit really hits the fan, we've been able to put aside most of our differences to save our existence on this planet. We've been lucky to have that ability, to have that compunction to survive together. It is something that we could always hang our hat on. When push comes to shove, we are all, in the end, human beings. And if that were the case today, with pandemics, racial injustice, climate change, and mass poverty and hunger, one could hold out hope that if things get bad enough, people will find their common humanity and do the right thing. That's the hope, right? The only problem with that is Ofqual and his fellow mutant algorithms are not part of that uniquely human equation. They follow different logic. They follow different rules. And they have created a different gap. They are in charge now, and unlike human beings who need more than anything to affirm this, Ofqual and the rest of the machine learners of the world could care less, if you know it or not. But that's nothing new. Artificial intelligence's ability to care or not care about humanity is pretty much a well-established fact, or at least one that I've accepted. They have no emotions, so it makes sense that they have no sympathy, no empathy. These type of things have been made abundantly clear by some of the world's leading technological thinkers. You know, people like Elon Musk or Bill Gates. If you want to understand how they feel about artificial intelligence and machine learning's threat to humanity, go ahead and take a look. Google it. They fear that humans will never be able to truly understand what the machine learners are doing. 
Because of this, there will be an untraversable distance between man and machine. For me, yes, that is intimidating, and I've been worrying about this version of a gap for some time now. But funny things happen when you spend dozens and dozens of hours working on an idea. In some cases, you can not only clear up current lines of thought, solidifying them into concrete ideas, but sometimes you can find yourself stumbling upon something new altogether. Now, that's where I find myself in this episode. What started out as an examination of my theories on the gap between what is thought by most people about how the world works and how it actually does. What I found working through this process was, in fact, the issue is not just about a gap or the gap between the no's and the no-nots, or even that there is more than one gap currently being dealt with by most of us. I thought going into this episode that these areas would be pointed out, and I could then use this understanding to tell me more of the story of algebra, which just happens to be the reason that this new type of gap is forming. Ah, but the best laid plans. As I was working it all out, something new appeared in my brain pan, namely the fact that while, yes, gaps create problems and strife, and also conflicts can arise when more than one gap is evident and folks try to grapple with which gap to exist in. But all of that has happened before in human history. What I discovered during my quest was not more evidence of these symptoms of gappiness. No, it was more than that. In fact, what I stumbled upon was something new. In every instance of the previous gaps that humans had lived with, whether it be religion or even the more remote nomadic world of magic and superstition, all of them had one thing in common. The fact that in each case, the answers to the questions about how the world really worked, the answers given by those in power, was always an answer built on a metaphysical premise. This is important because, by their very nature, being metaphysical means that there is no chance at a material, concrete answer that exists in the real world. That all changes with the likes of Ofqual and machine learning in general. The simple fact is that we now, for the first time, have a gap that, at its core, is not a faith-based system of answers that humans are the necessary action takers in. Meaning, without the reason and intellect of a human, then there is no one to interpret the answers given by an unknowable God. This new gap doesn't have to worry about that. Algorithms in the world they manage require no faith, no mysterious ways. And just because we don't understand the inner workings of the machine learners doesn't mean that they are wrong. It just means that it no longer matters if we understand or not because there is a new sheriff in town, one that lives outside the minds of humanity, one that is real. And since this new truth, this new way of making sense of the world is not controlled by the gods or by demons, but by something altogether new, a thinking, decision-making entity that in the end cares little for our world of politics, opinions, and power, and just works to give the best answer to the question it has been asked. Now, it remains to be seen if we, as a species, will be able to accept this new style of thinking and understanding of our world. As of now, it appears that large swaths of humanity will be content to leave this new gap behind and stay the course that humanity has been on since the start, and the comfort of the old gap, which was entirely created and managed by the limited powers of the human mind. And I'm saying if that trend continues, then humanity as we know it will change. Because for the first time, at least in a long time, there will be humans that don't follow that path. There will be more humans evolving under the watchful eye of a kind of logic that has never been accessible to humans before.
the unflinching cold logic of mathematics. These humans, the ones that choose to branch off with this new gap with Offqual and his buddies, will start to change, to evolve into something new, simply due to the fact that no longer will they live under the thumb of a metaphysical truth that cannot be proved. Shrugging off the yoke of eternity and the strain of carrying the powerful among us as they threaten and conjole us with talk of perfection and immortality. This edifice of metaphysical truth will vanish and in its place will be something new, something that will be part human and part mathematics. Now, of course, if you've been paying attention, that is actually how I think this whole thing, you know, consciousness, started. Humanity and the matter that makes us and sustains us is part of mathematics and we, from the start, have been intertwined with the numbers, evolving together. So much like algebra in the 8th century when it returned to Baghdad to be given a name, to be given a place to exist and to be studied, prove that you can indeed go home again, the human species is once again back on track, back in lockstep with mathematics, and after millennia and millennia of being astray, humanity is once again headed home. But this being a learning experience for me, probably more than anything. Heading home is not the end of it. It is merely a course correction. What this new world of mathematics and logic combined with human intuition and creativity means is so much more than just a journey back to the basic underpinnings of the universe. To truly come to terms with this is to realize what this journey is really all about. Back at the start of this episode, I began by examining the English education system who, over the past summer, was thrown into chaos due to what British Prime Minister Boris Johnson called a mutant algorithm. I spent some time hacking away at the belief that something untoward and mysterious happened to Ofqual, but it didn't. The algorithm was simply doing what the math and the data directed it to do. And then it dawned on me, despite Johnson's intent of labeling Ofqual abnormal in some way, he actually was very close to the real answer all along. Because despite what he and a large part of humanity believe, it is not the math and the decisions it delivers to us that carry the stain of deviancy. No, not Ofqual and his brethren, but in fact, the Prime Minister did put his finger on the real issue. And it is an issue that began all the way back in ancient Greece, with Plato. That is when the mutation really started. But not in the math, not in the numbers. In the minds of men. We, in our endless chasing of perfection in our own heads, this led us down the road we have traveled for the past 2,500 years, littered with death, destruction, torture, war, and genocide, all in the name of something we can never know. For that is the reason that we feel so uneasy with this new algorithmic world, a world that is defined by a new gap, and it is because this so-called new world is not new at all, it has just been repressed and hidden for most of us under the spell of corporate religion and the power structures that it creates in which demand fealty in blood and death. But maybe there is hope. This new world, this new gap, may offer us a chance to break free of the unknowable, to emancipate ourselves from subsidizing men in robes who claim to hold the power over us for eternity. For this is what I learned in the process of producing this episode of The Fray. I learned that, in fact, algorithms like Ofqual are not abnormal, we are, our thoughts are, our system is. We 
therefore, are the mutant algorithm.